foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist, author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? the third episode in a series I am doing on the Move Your DNA podcast, talking to people who are changing their world, the world through movement. It's not always clear right away that movement is a conduit to what they teach or do, but I see what they do as movement driven or facilitated in some way by movement. So I've asked them to join me here to talk about the movement and what they do. I'm going to start today's show by reading a little excerpt. There is incredible excitement in the anticipation of invisible things. Ice fishing, a baby growing deep in mama's belly. To most people, the silent winter trunks of a hardwood forest are dull blocks of frozen wood. To me, they are pregnant, powerful, delicious. There is something magical about sugar water running from a hole in a tree, the millions of gallons of sweet sap silently working its way skyward through the hard trunks of a maple grove. Sugaring turns the forager's calendar on its head, that lull of late winter when the woods seem to languish as it waits for spring, is for us tree tappers the busiest and largest harvest of the year. We begin in deep snow, shoveling paths to the shack and hauling our pails and wood in sleds. We work through snow, sleet, rain, and more snow. Ugh. That was from Incredible Wild Edibles, 36 Plants That Can Change Your Life, a book by Sam Thayer, who is also my guest today. 
He and I are going to be talking about wild plants and moving to get them. But before we begin, I'm going to start with a listener question. So the Move Your DNA podcast and listener questions are supported by a collective of small companies working hard to help you change your movement environment from what you put on your feet to how you take a seat at both home or in the office. These companies are Earthrunners, MyMyU, Venn Design, Unshoes, and Softstar Shoes. I've been personally using these companies for years. I've been wearing their shoes, sitting, rolling, and bouncing on their dynamic furniture, recommending these companies to my readers for years. I believe in their products and their business approaches. They're bringing you this first listener question. Are you ready? This is the question. Okay. Dear Katie, headaches, period. I don't think that's a question, but I get what you want to know. What do you think they have to do with movement? All right, that's question. Okay, so if everyone has a thing as far as their body goes or a collection of things, mine would be headaches. So I have, hands down, it's headaches. I've been in a relationship with my headaches for a long time. They started early in life, maybe seven or eight years old. They've persisted with regularity where taking seven to 10 Tylenol a month was a thing for me, certainly through my teens and my 20s, through paying attention to myself. I noted that I had different types of headaches. Some were headaches that came from my neck, some came from my eyes, some came from my sinuses, some came due to hormones or fluctuations. So I can I can say that, yes, it's headaches, but I don't see all the headaches as as equal because they are just a bunch of different occurrences that get lumped in together under this word or this kind of way that I see things. Anyway, so I've noted this before, but let me break it down a little bit. Let me break it down for you being one word, obviously. So I had a lot of neck tension headaches or headaches that I would, if I close my eyes, I'd be like, it's coming from this point in my neck. That's how I perceived it. And so I had different different stretches or techniques that different therapists had given me for, I don't know, a long period of time. But I recognize like, hey, a lot of these stretches and things that I'm doing for a less tense neck, I couldn't figure out their natural movement equivalent. And then I was like, oh, I, I get it. Every night I put this pillow underneath my head. I've, I only have an understanding of sleeping with a pillow. A, a pillow was inserted into my definition of sleeping before I even recognized it as being there so much that I couldn't even fathom really sleeping without a pillow. So it must have been very early on. Maybe as soon as I got put in my own bed, there was a pillow there and thus there was a movement environment where the mobility of my neck was automatically impacted by that choice. I transitioned away from my pillow. You can go to my website and see a tour of my home where I kind of show some of the motions that I'm using in my sleeping environment to go like, hey, a lot of, if you're worried about like what your neck does at night, like here's all of these movements that I do. And no, it doesn't look like an exercise class. I'm sleeping most of the time, but there's not a single position my neck is in for eight hours where that stiffness is allowed to set in. So I transitioned away from my pillow over about 18 months. And those headaches, I that is not a type of headache I get any any longer, that neck tension as like a regular monthly or, you know, a few times a year things. Like I can't think of the last time I had that 
neck tension radiating up into my head. I used to get headaches when I didn't have coffee or eat first thing in the morning. And over time, especially with a lot of the work that I did on dynamic aging and looking into a lot of different research on movement, specifically chewing and blood flow, I was like, oh, it's not necessarily food that I need right away, but but this this mashing of my teeth. And so I found that I could have something like a dehydrated mango or um, beef jerky, something that really required forced production of my jaws and that that was creating a cerebral blood flow that was very akin to what coffee can also create, right? That vasodilation effect. So I know that if I get up in the morning, it's not that I haven't eaten, it's that I haven't moved my jaw, right? Two different things. So for me, and I also have these chewing sticks, I have found that that was another thing, that my headaches that were coming from a very specific place in my face were mitigated by me getting that part of my body moving. So that's a couple different ones. The one headache that still lingers for me is a hormonal headache. And when I say hormonal, I don't know if it's actually caused by hormones per se, but there's other situations. Like for me, okay, here's another thing I remember. This is me a lot just talking all over the place because I'm just kind of working through a lot of years of history, that it probably is likely for me an iron issue. So my hormonal fluctuations, of course, I'm speaking in code about my menstrual cycle. I'm just going to say it. My menstrual cycle always brings on one day of headache. But I found that if I take iron, that headache, again, is mitigated. So that's my headache story Some of them are related to movement, some of them hormonal. I imagine that we're all engaged in many different things that affect the movement of our eyes and our muscles of our face and the blood flow to our head that aren't quite that simple. But I suffered for a very long time not recognizing that the headaches, you know, very debilitating for me were something that I that I just hadn't figured out was related back to other elements of my life. So I'm I'm just all for always looking at all the things and the situations that we're having as potentially being connected to something that we do on a regular basis that if we thought about it differently or had a little bit more information, we might be able to change and thus, you know, not have that issue. So I am almost entirely headache free. When I do get anything. It's going to be a headache. But I mean, as far as my total Tylenol per year, I'm probably down to maybe six Tylenol a year as compared to, you know, more like six a month. So I call that a win. If I had to talk about moves that I often heard feedback for, as far as chronic headaches go, it's surprisingly not things for the neck and shoulders. It is the calf stretch. Again, so the calf stretch, you can listen to the calf stretch podcast. I write about this in Whole Body Barefoot. The connection between the tension in your lower leg when you're walking around and the acceleration of your head and neck as being this mini kind of whiplash thing that's happening. And so to prevent your neck from getting whiplash with every single step, an easy adaptation of the body is to create tension down the back of the neck. And so for many people with with chronic headaches, maybe even, you know, worse than my my one to two Tylenol headaches, 
that calf stretch has been reported back to us as like, I can't believe that like stretching my calves is enough to affect my neck. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at it mechanically, tension in the lower leg can require that you keep tension in your neck to protect your neck. So you have the headache, but you have kind of a a more stabilized structure through tension. So anyway, things to think about. If I were to recommend exercises, again, calf stretch, rhomboid push-up, that's a great one to help transition for less pillow use, and the cat suit stretch. You can find that in whole body barefoot. That's putting your feet up, soles flat, unshod, up against a wall with a pillow or two underneath your hip and letting your body fall forward towards your thighs, including let your head drop all the way and boom, see what's going on. More sleep, check your diet, check your chewing exercises. Okay, that's enough information. So again, thanks to Venn Design, Earthrunner, My Mayu, Unshoes, Soft Star Shoes. You can find more about them on their websites, which you can find linked through show notes that go with each episode. And P.S., you can find the show notes by going to nutritiousmovement.com. Click on listen, select podcast transcripts. Sam Thayer is my guest today. Sam's a best-selling author and internationally renowned expert on wild food foraging. His books, The Forager's Harvest, Nature's Garden, and Incredible Wild Edibles are terrific reads. They sit on my nightstand, all three of them. They are full of the technical information that I adore, but they're surrounded with humor and, and I would say challenges to the status quo, which are maybe my favorite things in life. Movement, food, humor, and challenges, challenging perspectives. So today we're going to talk wild plants, how to harvest them safely and ethically, and the movements doing so takes. Sam Thayer, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you for having me on, Katie. I could talk to you forever. So I guess for those who don't know, we'll just start with a little bit of background. And I'll just say right now that everything that you're going to talk about Even the questions that I'm asking, some of them I already know the answers to because I've read your books and you've explained them beautifully. But I guess the the podcast is an opportunity for people to, while getting something else done, maybe find portals into other life experiences that they'd like to have. So let's just talk a little bit about your journey. Why did you begin foraging for wild food when you were a kid? You know, I started really because... I was hungry. Um, my mother had five children, and she really didn't like to cook. And so she made sure that we had enough calories, but we didn't have a very well-rounded diet. And I was craving things all the time when I was a kid. I wanted more than oatmeal and hot cereal and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I learned to uh, garden at a very young age. I learned to steal things from my neighbor's gardens at a very young age. I learned to help my neighbors in their gardens and get things without stealing. And I learned to eat crab apples and plums and apples and to pick butternuts and black walnuts in my neighborhood. Um, And that grew into this hobby of foraging, which to me as a child was just simply eating. And I didn't separate the methods of food procurement that I had. Eventually, I learned that there was books on this topic, uh, and that opened up this whole new world to me. I, all of a sudden, I, could, I didn't have to ask my, my dad or my grandmother or uh, my teachers or somebody working in their garden what a certain plant was or whether or not something could be eaten. I could just look it up in a book, and it 
made it so much faster to learn this stuff. So that's kind of the process by which I got into foraging at four or five years old. So did you have any mentors outside of your kind of your, like you mentioned, your your dad and your grandma? Or was it, are you completely self-taught or just picking up one thing here or there simply through books? You know, as a young child, I did not have any mentors. I mentioned my father because he taught me two or three plants that he knew. He taught me butternuts, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but by no means would I say my dad was a forager or a mentor in that hobby. My grandmother was 600 miles away, and if she was closer, would have taught me a lot more stuff. I didn't even realize until I was an adult how much she really knew. But she did teach me some wild edibles, and I loved to visit her, which was a once-a-year event generally when I was a child. Um, but I really never had a mentor until I was about 15, a girl I dated in high school. Her dad was a forager, and he and I went out together. He was more of a peer than a mentor, though, but he did teach me a lot of stuff, and I taught him a lot of stuff, and we had a lot of fun together for a few years um, collecting all kinds of wild stuff. But for the most part, I learned what I learned, learned either through books or, more importantly, I learned from the plants themselves. And people often forget that everything that is known about a plant that you can find in books was originally, if it is true, learned by a person observing the plant. Mm-hmm. And you can go out there and do this yourself. And the, the knowledge that you can acquire that way is not limited by what other people have done in the past. So this most of what I do now is observing the plants themselves and trying to figure out where they grow and why they grow there and how they grow. When you're talking about food, you're relying on traditions because millions and millions of people for thousands of years have undergone these experiments to determine what is safe and um, how something is used. And it's very nice to stand on their shoulders when you're engaging in foraging. Uh, I'm not eating random plants and just tasting them. But there are a lot of clues you learn that tell you that a plant is worth investigating. So you're saying that there's more to know? Are you suggesting there's more to know than what we know? There is so much <laughs> more to know. There is, there are, there are, there's cultural knowledge that has been lost, that's disappeared, um, or is buried somewhere where there's just very few people that know it. And there's also things that just are not discovered yet. And to me, that's so exciting. Yeah. The reason you write books, do you think that that is in part due to the impact of books on your life? It is partly, um, and it's also because it, it's it's a pretty efficient way to reach a lot of people. Mm. Um, I can take people out on a weekend, and I can have a group of maybe 12 or 16 people spend a weekend with me, and I can teach them a lot of stuff. But the book is just a much more efficient way to teach people. And I I want to put that down somewhere so that 70 years from now, somebody can dig that book out. Um, as I've been doing with 70-year-old books and, and, and see what I said about a particular plant. What inspires you to forage now? Like, it seems like you have this kind of pure motivator, intrinsic hunger, if you will, to get you started. But what keeps it, what keeps it going? It's fun. I mean, <laughs> it, the same reason that somebody wants to go for a walk in the park, the same reason someone wants to go look at the waterfall uh, when they visit Yellowstone. Um, I mean, it's just this intrinsic draw, and I don't even generally try to explain it. If I want to think of some logical reasons that I like to gather, I can 
think of a lot of great reasons. I mean, I can get the absolute best food in the world. And t- today, because I have a lifetime of eating these foods, I crave them. Mm-hmm. So I may crave salsify shoots. Well, there's no way I'm going to get them unless I go harvest them. You simply can't buy them. You know, I, there's all kinds of things in my yearly cycle that I crave, and I will never be able to get them unless I go gather them myself. Um, I can save money, but that's not a real big part of why I forage. But at times in my life, it has been very important. Um, I, I, I love cooking, and I can cook things with top-notch ingredients that no one else gets to cook with and make really exciting and interesting and healthy foods uh, out of the ingredients that I that I gather for free. So, and I also just love being in nature and doing stuff. And that's what foraging is. It's being in nature and doing stuff. The stuff that our ancestors have done for countless generations. I'm just thinking of driving through, you know, like Yellowstone. So many people experience these beautiful natural landscapes kind of in part because they're too big to take in, but like really the scale of everything that you can observe in Yellowstone can be observed in in a an acre of a of a space if you're getting down on the ground and like looking between the leaves of a tree or between the blades of grass or under leaves for mushrooms that that the the depth of what there is to be explored is there you don't actually have to drive to a national park that there's like these mini landscapes underfoot that I think aren't appreciated as much Foraging turns every place into a theme park. The whole world is a botanical theme park. You could go anywhere and have some interesting plants to look at, interesting interactions to see in how the plants and the insects and the birds and the other animals are... are I'm stumbling over my, my thoughts or stumbling over my words, but you can, I mean, you, you can go anywhere and, and, and look at what's happening in nature, and it's exciting. Um, for someone into plants, every alley, every roadside ditch, every vacant lot has exciting plants to find. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, I mean, you can, you can go to roadsides and find a plant that's never been recorded from this particular state um, without too much effort. So, uh, and foraging is good for your brain. It's, it's what your brain was meant to do, to look really closely and carefully at the landscape in a broad scale, but also at the small details that you were mentioning. Foraging gets your brain to look at all levels of your surroundings and to think about how they interact. And this interaction is exceedingly complex. And that's what our brains were designed to do. And that's why our, our brains are so good at so many things, because this natural world that we developed in is so complex and is so variable. Well, just to go back what you said about every lot, you know, there's, so so I have little kids. I know that you have little kids too. A lot of people listening to this are like trying to figure out how to get more nature education for themselves, more plant knowledge for themselves, for their families, but not everyone lives in, you know, really close to wild areas. So they're, their access to doing this really seems like shut off at the gate because it's like, well, I don't live on a million acres 
of a national forest like I do. I don't own a million acres. I just happen to be butted up against it. You know, not everyone has this opportunity to, you know, in in their minds, like engage in the natural way of moving through the natural world. But like I like to point out, and I think as you just pointed out, there are so many elements of nature and of natural movement and of foraging to be found wherever you are. I mean, there are community gardens and lots, right? Lots full of growing things, but it does require that you change how much you pay attention that you seek out some of these spaces. So are is there any anything else you su- can suggest for someone who's like, I would love to do all the things that you're talking about, but I feel like there's no way this applies to me. Is there like one thing that everyone could likely find or one way that most people could move through almost any landscape in a diverse set of like financial or time constraints? You know, everybody has access to wild food that they can gather. And the landscapes may not be natural, but the natural plants and animals are always trying to take back these human disturbed spaces. And they're always thriving. Some of them are always thriving there. So it doesn't matter how big of a city you live in or where you are, there's something to forage. And the plants that grow in urban areas tend to be quite uniform across the country, even across the world. If you were to be in Stalingrad during the summer, you're going to find some similar plants to what you're going to find in in, in Hamburg, Germany, or in New York City, or in Detroit. Um, so it's, you know, these, these ubiquitous weedy plants like amaranth and purslane and lamp quarters, uh, dandelion, black nightshade, these things are found in uh, a remarkable array of habitats and regions as long as the ground is disturbed. Okay, so this is a podcast about movement. So you, you again, you kind of, you, you physically use your body almost all day long because that's what taking care of your own food requires. So my question for you is, what did you come to understand about your body through foraging? You know, I have a philosophy um, that somatic energy is really important, that, that as soon as we abandon our bodies as a tool, we, ab- we make ourselves irrelevant. And it, 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 it makes sense that human beings naturally try to avoid physical labor because there's this equation of calories in and calories out. So you try to get your food in the easiest possible way. You know, so you try to get the most calories for the least caloric output. That's uh, a, a way that generally animals, including humans, live by. Um, and in the modern world, we have made access to calories so easy that if we follow those instincts, we will simply not give ourselves the physical activity that we need. So we desperately avoid exertion. If you look at the way that, uh, that we think of physical labor, it is almost invariably considered suffering and a sign of poverty. 
and we need to get over this. We need to get past this. Um, so I do a lot of things because I like the physical activity, and I design my life in such a way that I use as few machines as possible. I make maple syrup the old-fashioned way by carrying buckets of sap, and it is hard work. And I won't lie that there's a couple times a year where I think, man, I am exhausted. <laughs> I am tired, and I am sick of this. But you know what? That's part of being human. You, you need to be hungry sometimes. You need to be tired sometimes. You need to be exhausted sometimes and sore. And I mean the good kind of sore. So um, there, there is work, but variable work, sometimes very hard work involved in using wild food. And I think that's great. I mean, I'm a marathon runner, and I love long-distance running. But I don't run a lot or train much during wild racing season because – it is just as hard as running is, and it takes as much out of me. And so if I'm spending six hours on the water harvesting wild rice, then I'm probably not going running after I go racing that day. Okay, so that, this makes me think of, a, of something else I want to ask you. So just like every, mm, let's call it a, a plant, every plant that you harvest is going to be unique in its in the nutrients, like the dietary nutrients, you can extract from it once you put it into your mouth. But could you, I don't know, maybe th three, and if three is too many, we can drop down to two, but could you think of three different plants that have radically different mechanical nutrients or, or that, that vary in the diversity of movements required to harvest them so that someone who hasn't harvested wild foods could get a sense of like, oh, like maple syrup is one you could break it down into, you know, bucket hauling and then whatever else you have to do to turn the sap eventually into syrup. So like you've got chopping wood and whatnot. But if we come up with three different foods, could you break down the movements for those three foods so that the listener can get a sense of like, oh, I see that we've been thinking of food in terms of their end the way they affect our body after someone has done all the labor and we put it into their mouths. But if we were doing the work for our sugar and the work for our starches and the work for oh, acorn or something, that they could get a sense of the geometry configurations and think about it in those terms. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, I'll take the examples we already mentioned. I could start with, with wild rice. Uh, one of the physical things I'm doing that uh, is really feels great as I lift that canoe up, put it on my shoulders and carry it to the lake. And that may be anywhere from a hundred yards. To sometimes it's three quarters of a mile from where I park my vehicle. Um, and then there's hauling my finished bags of rice back. You know, uh, they're usually about 60 pounds, uh, a, a bag after I unload them from the canoe and I'm hoist them onto my shoulder and carry them back one at a time. So that can be a lot of walking there. And when I'm actually out on the water, I harvest rice uh, sometimes with a partner, uh, usually my wife or her father, or sometimes alone. But this involves standing in the canoe, which is great for your balance. And, of course, when you're balancing standing in a canoe, you're using your lower leg muscles and your feet muscles just constantly in variable ways to keep yourself balanced. It's like stand-up paddling, right? Essentially, stand-up paddling would be the athletic equivalent to one element of rice harvesting. Yeah, yep, except I'm not, instead of paddling, I'm using a pole. Right, okay. And the, the mechanics and the motions of pushing with that pole are 
too complex to explain over the phone, but it's a difficult skill. It's like riding a bicycle. It takes people a while to get it. So, um, you know, you, you have a 14 to 16 foot long pole and you are pushing the canoe forward with it and trying to at the same time control where the canoe goes to get it exactly where you want it in the proper position in the rice. And, you know, there's a lot of upper body work and a lot of mid body work, uh, to, uh, adjust how you're transferring the, the, uh, energy from your pole through your body to the canoe to make it turn a particular way and to move it forward. Um, and, in the act of uh, knocking the rice, is what we call getting the wild rice into the canoe, um, if, if I'm ricing with a partner and I'm only knocking rice at a particular time, you know, you're, you're reaching out with one arm to draw the rice uh, closer to the canoe. You have, a, you have a cedar stick about 30 inches long in one hand, and then you have a cedar stick in your other hand that comes in behind it and swipes the rice so that it knocks the ripe and loose kernels off of the stalks into the canoe. And you're, it's, it's very much a dancing-like motion. You're making this knocking motion about once every second to a second and a half. It depends on, um, uh, you know, how thick the rice is and how tall the rice is. But, you know, you'll do that for, say, an hour and 40 minutes and then switch places. So this is a, an aerobic, fairly intense aerobic exercise that's using different muscles in running, but the breathing is heavy, like, like distance running. And um, then, so that's most of what's done for the harvest of rice. But then we have the processing to get the rice out of the hulls, where you're, we parts the rice, usually about half a bushel at a time in a big, I have a 30-gallon copper kettle, and you're stirring that while you're parching it. And so that's a, another different motion in your body. And then um, the, the most physically demanding part of it is what they call dancing the rice, which is getting the hulls off by rubbing them with your feet. So after the rice is parched enough to make the hulls brittle and to burn off the very tips of the awns, which are sharp and dangerous, then you put that in an oak barrel. It's a 13 to 15-gallon barrel, typically, the way, at least the way that I dance the rice. And you have some deer hide leggings or like moccasins with a long top. And you place your feet, you kind of alternate pressure from one foot to the other. You twist your body so that the rice is twisted under your foot and between your foot and the, the bottom of the barrel. And you do that repeatedly at a fast pace. And it's one of these things where the energy you put in directly corresponds to the work you get done. So the faster and harder you work, the sooner you get the hulls rubbed off your rice. Actually earning your food through your movement. Yes, and after that you winnow the rice, which is uh, takes a lot of hand-eye coordination and is not really physically strenuous, but certainly you're you're moving around. Um, but there's no extremely difficult um, activity to it. But it's kind of a more relaxing motion. So typically, this was a social activity, and maybe one person out of eight or ten would be dancing the rice at any one time and might do that for twenty minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it took to get that batch ready. And then they would take a rest and then take a turn at winnowing rice or stirring the rice, you know, in the kettle. So there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, to getting your wild rice ready to eat. Um, I don't know, was that too long or? No, I think that's helpful. You know, there's, there's just a lot of information coming out now about the strengths of it was like European women 5,000 years ago and looking at their, their bones and, and assessing their strength from the shape of their bones and the connective areas of their muscles to go like, 
these women here, just through the processing of their food, were strong, had stronger bones than athletes now, simply because the amount of work is so intense. And also, I don't think it's too long because, you know, I, I'll write a lot and try to explain a lot about the work of food and the diversity of motions for food, but I don't, I've never harvested and made rice. So it's all very theoretical. Like I understand the motions, but I think again, you are living in a way that gives you firsthand knowledge and thus, I guess, more more credibility to explain it. So that that's exactly what I was after. If you were to do like what is what would be, I would say, if we're looking at the nutrients, the movement nutrients of one, what other plant we don't have to do three, but what other plant would be like the complement to that one in terms of using your body much differently? Well, certainly um, with maple syrup, it's, there's almost none of the same motions. Mm-hmm. Um, this time of year, um, usually one day a week, I'm making firewood to get ready for syrup season. And that, and I cut with a chainsaw, um, but that's pretty hard physical labor, even though a lot of people think the saw is doing all the work. It is, but it's sure. still a lot of work to operate that I've never saw. chainsawed anything, if you think that it's easy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, hard, it's harder. People that haven't used a chainsaw are often shocked at how physically strenuous it actually is to operate a chainsaw for a right. while. Right. Um, and then I'm hauling that wood, um, usually in a sled, pulling it behind me, um, splitting it and stacking it. And that's all pretty hard work, but very different motions. Uh, and then, of course, during sap season, um, I'm after I get the the whole sugar bush set up by drilling the trees, tapping in the spigots, hanging the buckets. Then it's uh, you know fairly regular um, carrying buckets, which is probably the most physically strenuous part of my year is during those that intense part of maple syrup season because there's times when I mean, I work 16 or 18 hour days and half of that is carrying buckets. So I might walk the equivalent of 16 miles in a day and with two, five, two full or nearly full five gallon buckets half of the time. So uh, it's, yeah, very different muscle groups. And when I'm doing that type of intense work, I have to really think about the ergonomics of what I'm doing mm-hmm. or I'm going to get sore or I'm going to get repetitive motion injuries, which is, uh, you know, a fact of life that I don't think the motion injuries are a fact of life, but that you have to think about them when you're really exerting yourself. And I'm not saying that anybody needs to do this to the extent that I do it. I make maple syrup and harvest wild rice as part of my income. Um, it would be the same type of activity, just less of it. If I was just making it to feed myself, you know, ergonomics just come in handy for anything that you do repetitively for a long period of time. So sitting at it, if your desk is, you know, the two buckets and 16 miles, then adjusting how you do it is not is is good for you and how you feel, but also your ability to be productive and make money and take care of other aspects of your life. Okay, this is a good spot for another listener question brought to you by The Collective. Cabo. It says Cabo. That is my nickname from high school, but I doubt this person is from high school. Anyway, Cabo, out of all of the elements of a minimal shoe, which would you say 
is most important to make sure we have? Oh, okay. Oh man, this is a, this is actually a great question. And the answer is going to be, it depends, but I will also give you a bigger toolbox to help you make, to determine the answer for yourself. So for those that don't know the elements, the elements of a shoe, and this is all covered in simple steps to foot pain relief. That book goes way more into shoes as compared to whole body barefoot, which goes way more into feet. So for simple steps, the elements of a minimal shoe are a zero rise heel, which means that the back of the shoe is at the same height as the front of the shoe. That would be zero rise, flexible sole, and flexibility can be determined in multiple directions. So if you pick up your shoe, you might be able to bend it front to back, but you might it might not twist as well. So there's there's multiple planes that you could evaluate for flexibility. Wide toe box, which means the front of the shoe, can you spread your toes away from each other? A fun way to do this is to put your foot on a piece of paper, spread your toes as far away from them as they go, trace your foot, and then put your shoe over on top of it. I just did this with my daughter the other day, and she thought it was hilarious because I was showing her in her favorite pair of dress-up shoes that she swears are not too small. I was like, don't take my word for it. Use the math. Full upper. So the upper is the part of the shoe that connects the foot to the bottom of the shoe. So if you're putting on, you know, a trainer, a boot, a shoe that where your whole foot is like encased, that's a full upper. That being said, so is a sandal that maybe wraps around your heel and over your toes as well. So it doesn't have to, a full upper doesn't mean that it has to be fully covered or protected from the sun or the wind. It's that the work that your foot has to do is is minimal in keeping the shoe on. So again, in simple steps, I talk about a flip-flop, you know, only has those two thin straps that come over. Thus, it's a very it's a pretty minimal upper. But to keep the shoe on, you have to flex, you have to contract all of your toes while you're walking to keep it from slipping off. So that is not an upper that connects your foot very well to the shoe. You have to put in a lot of geometry changes and muscular force to keep the shoe on while you're walking. It's like extra movement and movement in a way that over time can actually create lots of tensions and a shortening of those toes, hammer toes. You can Google that to see a picture of what I mean by kind of creating a rigidity of shape because you're recruiting that way of walking over and over again. Take that same flip-flop, though, and add a strap that that goes around your ankle. So again, the mass that you're adding to the shoe isn't very much, but because of the um, engineering now requires or doesn't require that you grip your toes, meaning your feet can stay completely relaxed for just that little bit of mass added and you can have a relaxed foot, now you have a fuller upper. You could even be considered a minimal upper or an upper that qualifies for minimal shoe status because you don't have to do any work to keep your shoe on. And then one more is the lack of toe spring. So if you put all your shoes on a table and measured the height of the 
toe box above the ground, if you see that that's rising up, a lot of shoes kind of have like a little swoop in the front. That's called toe spring. We would want to not have that. We would want to have the front of your foot be able to rest on the ground and not be permanently elevated. I only used to have four elements of minimal shoe. For those of you who read the first edition of Simple Steps to Foot Pain Relief, but Dr. Ray, a podiatrist who created Correct Toes, he has this toe spring and wrote me about toe spring as an element that he uses. And I was like, yes, of course, we will add that to the to the book. So the new edition has that fifth. So if you've only read up on the fourth, make sure you're read up on that fifth one. So those are those are the elements of a minimal shoe. So a minimal so a shoe can be it's a continuum, right? You can have everywhere from like a super structured shoe with a high heel and a and a sole that doesn't flex and a very narrow toe box. And it could also be a flip-flop and it could also have your toes up at the front, which would be a fun contest to design. But but a minimal shoe is on a continuum. Like and you could also add other elements, which is exposure to sun, exposure to air because there's there are so many differences between our shoes and feet that I am really putting, I'm only putting five, you could add more. Which ones are most important really depend on the experience that you are currently having with your feet. So it's not as easy as saying, make sure you have X or Y and ranking them in in importance as a global statement their importance really relates back to you and your personal needs. You can have a minimal shoe that is completely flat and a thin, flexible sole, but maybe what you do with your body is stand in place. Like I'll get emails from a lot of nurses or people who have to stand for long baristas, people who have to stand for long periods of time on their feet on hard, flat surfaces, in which case that minimal shoe in that context actually isn't serving them all that well. And they'll be like, I really feel like I need to add cushion. And I'm like, yeah, you do. You need to add cushion. So if you want to keep that flat and flexible element, you want to look for something that's that's beefed up its cushion a little bit and minimize that geometry. So this is why I really recommend that rather than memorizing or learning the characteristics of the shoe, you learn how each characteristic of the shoe affects your body so that you can then rank them in order. For me, or if I if I were to say if everyone was going to make one small change, the altitude of heel would be an would be probably the the easiest. That being said, if someone is having a lot of pressure on the front of the foot or 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 the toe gripping or the toes is a thing, it might warrant you to be addressing the front of your toe box. Then again, if your heel is putting a lot of pressure on the front of your foot in that narrow shoe, again, the heel is the most important. So if you're only going to address one thing, the heel is probably going to be the easiest to address down in scale. What I would recommend is going and pulling out the shoes, the three pairs of shoes you wear the most often, and give them a rank. Again, in Simple Steps, there's a grid to help you do this. Like score your shoes and go, you know what? I notice that that maybe I have a range of heel height. Like I do spend quite a bit of time in flats and maybe I have the heels for some time. But I've noticed that all my shoes have a narrow toe box, in which case for you, your current footwear 
selection really never allows for that one type of movement of moving the front of your foot, that would be the piece for you to add. If having the flat heel and very malleable sole, you're noticing, you know, my feet, I don't have time to add a lot of foot strengthening stuff. And now the extra malleability is creating, you know, a stress riser somewhere in my foot, or I'm noticing that I'm getting like that my foot isn't strong enough to deal with it, then that thickness of, not the thickness, but the stiffness of the sole could be a nice bolster for you while you get other elements of minimal. So again, this is up for you to determine. It really depends on your physical experience and what you would be transitioning to minimal shoes for. If you go to the beginning of Move Your DNA, there's a place where I ask you to write out the things, your physical experience to help you quantify it a little bit where you can then start to maybe correlate your footwear to various other elements that aren't always within the foot. Some people have issues with their feet. Some people don't, but they have issues with their knees and their hips or their bone, and they can learn how that footwear affects to that. And then you can start picking the element that's most crucial for you. So sorry, my answer is it depends, and it's up to you to determine it. But isn't it great to know that that's something that you can learn and determine? Let's get back to the interview. Thanks again to Unshoes as well as Earthrunners, my Mayu, Ben Design, and Softstar. I really appreciate your support, and I hope the listeners are loving these questions inserted into our podcasts. Go check out their websites. Okay, back to Sam. Are there any plants that get you down on the ground, like digging or squatting down? Oh, yes. Yeah. What would be one? So, I mean, one thing that I like about picking nuts, whether it's acorns or hickory nuts or walnuts, is I, I, I sit on the ground, you know. Um, I'm, I'm kind of crawling on my hands and knees, and often with hickory nuts, I'm, I'm, I have a tub that I slide around on the ground, and then I'm picking up as fast as I can with my free hands, and, and then, you know, I quickly dump them in the bucket, and I'm kind of I'm pivoting in a circle where my knees are the center um, of the, of the radius. And then when I clear that area, then I maybe scoot over one hop or drag my knees just a few feet and then kind of start the process over again. So, you know, when I'm collecting hickory nuts, I may spend, you know, several hours on the ground, on my hands and knees, crawling around, scooting around and, and picking these nuts off the ground. And, uh, also when I harvest ground beans, um, I rake, I have a very small curved digging stick that is in my right hand and I rake the surface of the ground with that digging stick and I pull the beans out as they're exposed with my left hand. So quite different motions there. Um, and those tend to be things that I can do for a very long time without feeling sore or even particularly tired, but they're good, like, like low level cardio activity that lasts all day long. Yeah, and I think it's also, I think many people perceive that the only way to get cardio is through doing a cardio exercise, right? Like running or or jumping that there are these kind of repetitive, low impact, carrying heavy load ways of, of cardio, which I also like to just remind people means that you're moving your the muscles around your rib cage, the, the weight, like the alignment of how you take in a breath, like you're basically changing the mechanics of how you breathe and the flow of your blood that that's, that's what's happening when you do cardio. It doesn't necessarily 
have to do with what you're doing on the outside of your body. It's referring to what's going on on the inside of your body. So I was going to ask you what you love about using hand tools, but I think you've probably already answered it. Like what, what is your favorite hand tool? Like what's your, what is, what's like under your pillow? You love it so much. Oh, what's my favorite hand tool? I mean, <laughs> I actually like hand tools because they make life simpler. If, unless you use a tool a lot, I mean, a power tool can be just, uh, just a hindrance and an annoyance in, in, in my view. But I've got a hammer my brother gave me when I turned 18, and I love that thing. We call it the porcupine hammer because porcupines like to chew on the handles of tools, and the thing was almost brand new, and a porcupine chewed up the handle pretty good. Um, but, you know, the amount of work I've done with that hammer in my life is kind of ridiculous. But I have... I have, you know, I've got a kitchen knife I really love, and I've got a hunting knife that I really love, and I've got a hatchet I love, and I've got a shovel that I love. So <laughs> I got, a, I got, a, I got a lot of hand. I mean, I spend a lot of time with a particular tool, and you just, you just, you just grow kind of attached to it. It becomes like an extension of your body. Yeah. Okay. How how important would you say that your identity as a forager is to the way that you understand the world? Like, can you even separate them? No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I definitely view the world through different eyes than most people. Um, and I, which I love about you, which is like the best reason to get all of your books. If you want to learn a different way to see the world, read your books is just, I'll end that there. You can go ahead. I just, uh, and I consider that fully a positive thing that I see the world through the eyes of a forager. I look at the landscape and I don't see just a jumbled mass of greenery, uh, I see, you know, I see um, wild grapevines with carrion flower growing through it and think, oh, there's probably rabbits in there. So I've spent a lot of years trying to break down the mechanics of individual and cultural sedentarism. And what I appreciate, appreciate about your work is I find that, you know, you're I don't even think what you write could really even be classified as field guides. They're certainly not only field guides. Because I find my mind's challenged to think about how I was instructed about the world differently, which I really appreciate. I'm aware that there is, in the same way that there's resistance to movement, both within ourselves and culturally, there seems to be a kind of a similar resistance to this idea of humans consuming wild food, food that occurs naturally, how do you meet this resistance? Well, I encountered two different forms of resistance to foraging. One, people who claim that it's damaging to the environment. And the second is people's fear of foraging, fear of poisoning themselves. Um, and with both types of resistance, I want people to know that I'm on their side. Like, I'm not trying to promote irresponsible foraging that is likely to result in somebody getting poisoned, and I'm not um, interested in foraging that's going to be harmful to the environment. So I let people know right off the bat, like, I understand your concern. And then I can say, but here's the truth. Um, and with the fear of poisoning, this is, there, there's a very good reason that we're afraid of poisoning ourselves, and that's because we come from thousands of generations of food gatherers, and we have a built-in instinct that tells us that we need 
to only eat a plant if we know what it is. And when you actually go out and forage, that instinct expresses itself in exactly that way. It says, don't eat this. You don't know what it is. Very healthy way, very helpful way. But for people who don't forage, you have an instinct that is boiling over. It's trying to come out. It's trying to express itself, but it doesn't know how to express itself because these people no longer engage in the activity that the instinct was designed for. So it comes out in these absurd, irrational ways, basically fear of food itself, fear of plants themselves, fear of nature and mushrooms. And, and this is just ludicrous. And so I try to point out like statistically how incredibly safe wild food foraging is. Um, there is like one to three deaths a decade that arguably could be caused by plant misidentification in North America. That's almost unbelievably low when you consider that there are millions of people that engage in this activity. Um, so it's remarkably safe and you just have to follow the simple rule, know what it is before you eat it and know that it's safe. Um, and then when you come to this, uh, this idea that foraging is bad for the environment, um, I think it's equally absurd. Um, foraging can be practiced irresponsibly, but any activity can be practiced irresponsibly. Uh, it's, it's really easy to forage responsibly, and it's actually pretty hard to forage irresponsibly. If you wanted to forage irresponsibly, it would take extraordinary effort to do so. Like, the amount of labor that it would take would be such that you would have to have a really good reason to damage the environment through foraging. And that, that really good reason in most people's cases is, is, is money. So if you're not collecting a wild food to sell, there's almost no chance of people damaging the environment through foraging. Um, I like to point out to people you know that nature center you go to and there's a parking lot and there's some paved walking trails or mowed walking trails? The environmental impact of that parking lot and that visitor center and those hiking trails is far greater, a far greater negative impact on that nature center than if every person who came there went and collected some wild greens to eat before they left. Um, we just, it's a, it's a silly cultural notion that eating from the landscape destroys it because our ancestors ate from this landscape for thousands and thousands of years and it remained vibrant and intact. And it's only after we decided to remove the native vegetation and replace it with a different simplified ecosystem we call agriculture, that is where destroying nature in order to eat your food um, came into our mm -hmm. lives. Before that, we ate nature and had nature at the same time because we were part of it. Yeah. So you've done quite a bit of work to have this knowledge at your fingertips, literally. How are you facilitating? Are, are you facilitating this with your own kids? I mean, obviously all parents are modeling what they do, but are you actively taking them out? Do they, do you, do they go or do you go to other wild food classes or how are you making this a family thing if you are? Well, we just forage together. It's just they don't realize that, well, that's not true. They're starting to realize now that this isn't normal, but, I mean, they were born into a foraging household. In fact, I had a guest a few days ago, and we all sat down for breakfast, and I cracked a bunch of hickory nuts, and while the wild rice was cooking, 
we all sat down, my wife, my two older children, and, uh, and I and my guests, we all sat down and shelled hickory nuts. And he was mentioning how at our house we could never get the kids to do this. Well, I said, we don't get the kids to do this. This is just what, <laughs> what we, we do. do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, right. there's, there, you know, there's no convincing involved. This is just what life is in our house. So, um, you know, we go pick blueberries or service berries or both every summer, and we'll camp out and we will spend the whole day outside, and we will get as much food as we can. We'll also have a lot of fun. We might go chase a ground squirrel. We might find a turkey nest. We might find a, a lizard or a snake under a log, and have a bunch of great experiences outside and get a bunch of blueberries and get a bunch of exercise and then go swimming at the end of the day. And, you know, this is just what life is. So um, it, I think it's really hard and not very effective to try to, quote, get children to do a particular thing or get them to learn a particular thing. I think it's really easy to do it yourself and have kids want to participate. Uh, in fact, I really believe that these mundane activities involved in foraging are such a part of the human past that we are instinctively drawn to them. If I get out a bucket of hickory nuts and I'm taking the husks off and there's a group of people around, a whole bunch of those people without any prompting from me are going to sit down next to me, ask me what I'm doing, and then start shucking hickory nuts alongside me. This happens to me many times every year. Like People are instinctively drawn to that, including children. A lot of people will ask me, like, how, how much movement do I have to do to start like, identifying myself as a mover? When do I become a mover? To which my answer is like, well, as soon as you, I mean, we're all movers. But if you're thinking about like transitioning to more movement, as soon as you take any steps, literally or figuratively, or take steps towards this thing that you want to do on a larger scale, like that's that's when you are it, that it's like a headspace thing first and foremost. So for those people who are wondering, like, if I go out and I, you know, find this alley, you know, or go in my yard and find miner's lettuce or find dandelions, like, is the moment that I first gather these and throw them on my tacos or put them in my salad, am I now a wild food person or am I like a poser? Like, what does it take to become a wild food aficionado? Well, there's no such thing as a poser. I, I mean, you if you you gather the thing and you eat it, then you've you've gathered that thing and eaten it. And and I don't place a lot of value on the categories. Um, you know, am I enough of a gatherer to be considered a hunter gatherer? I mean, I don't know, and I don't really care. But you know, uh, it's just. The beauty of foraging is you start with one plant. Start with one plant, usually that you already know, but don't eat. I mean, most people know some edible plants already. They just don't know how they're eaten, or they haven't taken the step of going and eating them. And so as soon as you uh, know one plant, you can use that one plant. It isn't like learning a language where a couple words doesn't do you much good until you learn the grammar and the syntax and how they're put together. Um, you can learn one plant and incorporate that one plant into your diet, and then at the next convenient time, you can learn the next plant. 
and you don't need to worry about you know where you fall in the hierarchy of foragers or how you need to categorize yourself. Fluency not required, right? Just if you want to take a step, just take a step, right? That that's fine. Absolutely. It's enough. It's great. It's wonderful. You're good. It's all those things. Absolutely. What are some really general harvesting guidelines? Okay. As far as the sustainability of harvesting, uh, plants come in different categories depending on what part you're using and what they are in the landscape. Plants that we consider weeds, you really don't need to worry about the amount that you harvest. Plants where you're collecting only the greens or only the seeds or only the fruits, um, there's not uh, a big worry uh, about over-harvesting those. But when you get to digging up underground parts, that's when you need to really understand the plant's ecology and how it is affected by that before you do that in any significant amount. Um, as far as safety, um, you know, I don't dwell on safety rules because this is not a dangerous activity. Uh, you know, when I when people talk about fishing, they don't go on and on about fishing safety or tennis safety or, you know, uh, it's, it's not a dangerous activity. Um, it's only people that don't forage imagine the, uh, a certain level of danger. Um, so I don't really have a bunch of safety guidelines other than know what the plant is before you eat it. What about like areas that are sprayed? Like that's always like a, yeah, that's, that's definitely a concern. Um, so in fact, you know, the concern, the big concern used to be with, with lead from automobile exhaust. And that is still a concern, even though that lead hasn't been in the gasoline for 30 or 40 years, but it's uh, been somewhat superseded by the concern over herbicides and insecticides, both of which are really prevalent in use. So, you know, when you gather on property that you're familiar with, your own backyard, even your alley in your neighborhood, you're likely to have a, a good bead on what's happening there and whether or not there's any dangerous chemicals there. But uh, very well manicured landscapes like golf courses and certain city parks and certain people's lawns, those are the kind of places that can be dangerous to forage um, or agricultural land if you don't know the status of that agricultural land. Um, you just have to be aware and and use common sense. I, uh, but yeah, you don't you don't want to eat herbicides or pesticides um, in your food. And you know the bigger pitfall that I see with foraging for people that are getting into it has nothing to do with safety, and it is about culinary sensibility. People tend to think that because I have identified this plant, now mm. I can use it as a food. When in fact that is not how food works. Everyone who eats asparagus knows that there is a narrow uh, time during the year when it is appropriate to harvest asparagus. There is an appropriate stage of growth. And every wild plant also has an appropriate stage of growth. And you can have horrible recipes and horrible experiences with food if you are collecting the wrong part or the part at the wrong time when it simply isn't in the right stage to be eaten. And these things aren't going to be poisonous, but nobody wants to eat a tough old woody stalk or a bitter, tough, you know, leaf covered with sand. So the quality of what you gather is really important to having a positive experience with foraging. You need to be picky 
if you're going to like it enough to come back and do it again. After talking to you, I feel like I might need a wild food cookbook. What's your favorite wild food cookbook if you have one? You know, I have an old one from the 70s called Billy Joe Tatum's Wild Food Cookbook. Um, and I, I like that one. And I really like the Yule Gibbons books. His recipes tend to be based on experience and well-explained and have pan out quite well when I try them. Um, there's a, quite a few uh, wild food cookbooks out there. And I find that my cooking is so different than most people's cooking that it is hard for me to find yeah. a cookbook where I think, oh, that fits into my kitchen real well, because I have a set of ingredients that they may not have. Well, as far as the weeds go, I can just throw out there that some of the simplest recipes were simply throwing dandelions into a smoothie. My kids love dandelions. I remember reading in your book years ago, it's like people say they're bitter, like that bitter is not a a flavor that anyone can be used to or that there aren't a lot of cultures used to bitter. We just tend to not like it. So we throw them in smoothies all the time, which doesn't require really any skill, but it just kind of starts modeling with, hey, right out out backyard, you guys go get the greens for what you're going to make today. Miner's lettuce again and dandelions get chopped up and just thrown raw into salads, tacos. Like that's not even hard cooking and nettle is really great stir fried. Again, that's just like a little oil, a little garlic. So you do not have to become a culinary wizard. And I'll link to the other sources that you mentioned, Sam. Yeah, I promote not haute cuisine for cooking <laughs> with wild foods. I promote boss cuisine. Haute cuisine is what the royalty paid other people to prepare for them because it was not something that was labor efficient enough that anybody would make it for themselves. Whereas I promote using wild foods in the really healthy ways that the commoners used to eat wild foods. The Mediterranean diet is based upon uh, everyday use of lots of wild leafy greens combined with you know, pork and olive oil and seafood. And that is a really, really easy way to use wild food. And a lot of the recipes are so simple, like the fried greens that you mentioned, so simple and so good. And I could eat it day after day after day and not tire of it. What's your favorite wild food to eat? Well, it's really hard to compare classes of foods. Like if I'm right, just right. stuffing my face with berries off the bush, I probably like service berries, <laughs> good service berries, mm. better than anything else. But man, wild strawberries are also, it's hard to compare, but I never gorge on wild strawberries. I just, I don't get quite enough. Um, I, as far as flavor, I love shag bark hickory nuts. They are just out of this world delicious. So, I mean, it's hard to compare these wide range of produce types. What's the hardest thing to forage of all plants and not necessarily the entire process where, you know, if you're carrying heavy things, but like minute to minute, either the fact that they're so distributed far away from each other, like we have wild strawberries here, but there's also a ton of birds in this one open space where we are. So to find them require to find one or two requires so much movement in between. So like if you were to compare a minute by minute of of the gathering part, which would be like the most challenging of all wild foods? So the, mo the most labor intensive thing that I regularly set aside a lot of time to collect probably is 
wild strawberry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just so delicious that they're worth yeah. it. But uh, the, every year, the crop of different foods varies. And there's so, such variety of wild food available that I will collect whatever makes sense that particular year. We eat a lot of nuts in our household, but we have a lot of options. You know, we have, we have hickory nuts, black walnuts, uh, and hazelnuts, and all of them in some years are in great quantity, and other years they're, they're hard to find. So usually, and, and also in butternuts. So between those four nuts in our region, every year I'm going to get at least one in a bumper crop, maybe two or three, um, and at least one usually fails each year. So I try to just select the things that are the, the best use of my time. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking out my window and I have a yard and I'm looking at all the plants and going, yeah, I know what's edible and what isn't. But for those of you who are going, I just don't, I don't even know where I could possibly start. You have to think outside the box a little bit. Where I live in the Pacific Northwest, I read your latest book on the, is it 36 Best Incredible Plants? And it had this maple section and you're writing on maple for years has it been my favorite. You had this essay that I could no longer find that was amazing. But now I have this book section and I went to my mom's house and I looked up and she is in a sugar maple grove in the Pacific Northwest. We don't have them really anywhere else. And I realized that they're all around. So I was like, I can actually I can I thought this was something that you could only do if you lived like in Wisconsin. I just didn't know. And then I paid attention and there was all the supplies that I need. And then I asked around, and sure enough, there is also a little acorn patch, a little oak tree patch, which they're not abundant here, that just sits and drops all their acorns that just that no one is busy gathering. So you might just have to do a little bit of work, a little bit of talking to your community to find what might be available to you that doesn't actually have to be in your own backyard. You can walk there. You can You can figure out what you need to do. But you also gave good advice a long time ago, which I included in one of my books, I think Movement Matters, in the appendix, which is go find a garden, right? That you could actually just go find an old garden that someone hasn't pulled everything from and start there, right? That you could actually just forage garden. It doesn't even have to be wild. Well, that's that's true. But also within a garden, the weeds that volunteer themselves are mostly edible plants. There's a few things that come in as garden weeds that aren't edible, but um, it's one of the safest and easiest places to learn to forage because there are very, very few dangerously poisonous plants that volunteer as weeds in people's gardens, and the vast majority of what grows on its own in the garden, in between your rows of tended vegetables, is going to be food plants. So even what we're picking and throwing away is, is basically food. That, yeah. that didn't take any like labor-free food to cultivate. You just have to gather. Exactly. I mean, you can double the output of your garden. We actually, in our, we have a vegetable garden, an annual vegetable garden, and we actually have four weeds that we save uh, some to go to seed, and then we broadcast and distribute the seeds throughout the garden in the fall so that they come up thick next summer because it about doubles what we get out of our garden. So that's lamb's quarters, amaranth, black nightshade, and no, I'm going to have to remember the fourth one. Was it purslane? <laughs> um, we actually, purslane does not do good on our soil. Mm-hmm. We have just a very little bit of purslane in our garden. We have black nightshade, amaranth, lamb's quarters. I'm sorry, I'm terrible. That's all right. Um, any, anyways, those three for sure. <laughs> I, I, I spread around the garden, and uh, then I'm harvesting them all year long in between the, the garden vegetables. I mean, all growing season. 
Really, there's not really any arguing that nature is abundant here. Okay. Well, I thank you very much for coming on. Is there anything? I'll tell everyone where we can find you here in a second, but do you want to leave us with any other bits of your wisdom? No, not that I can think of. I probably already talked too much. That was perfect. I, I have a tendency to blab on and on when you ask me a question. So You and me both, brother. Okay. Sam Thayer is the author of The Forager's Harvest, Nature's Garden, and Incredible Wild Edibles. You can find Sam online at foragersharvest.com. I encourage you to check out everything. There's wonderful articles to read there. You can also check out his classes and appearances tab. You offer a lot of foraging workshops through the year, and you can find all of his books and videos there as well. Sam, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Katie. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.